You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. We are nearly 200 days into the Ebola outbreak in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. As of February 17th, there have been 840 total cases and 537 deaths caused by the outbreak. The response effort continues to encounter insecurity on the ground, including active community resistance. In this episode of Take as Directed, I speak with Dr. Mitch Wolf. He's the acting director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Washington, D.C. office, as well as CDC chief medical officer. Dr. Wolfs discusses the current status of the Ebola outbreak in DRC, CDC contributions, and what to expect as we look ahead. We did have a town hall at the Munich Security Conference, which involved Mike Ryan from WHO, Henrietta Four from UNICEF, Paul Stoffels from Johnson and Johnson, and Jean-Pierre Lacroix, the Undersecretary General for UN Peacekeeping. A couple of the main conclusions that came from that, a certain hope but also caution about what can we expect from President Tisha Kady. It's early days. I think Dr. Tedros, who came in remotely by video, was cautionary in saying, you know, look, this is containable. The numbers are not astronomic. We haven't moved into a steep trajectory that, like we had in West Africa, which resulted in over 28,000 uh, deaths. So keep things in perspective. We're here today with Dr. Mitch Wolf from CDC, Chief Medical Officer and Acting Head of the CDC Washington Office. And we wanted to carry the conversation forward from this point and hear a bit more about a couple of things. One, how is CDC seeing this outbreak and the agenda for 2019? And then a bit more about the centrality of CDC to the response that takes various forms. So why don't we start with those two broad questions, and then we can take it from there. So thank you for joining us, Mitch. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me here today. I want to start off by stressing that we, meaning CDC and the U.S. government, are committed to working to end the outbreak as soon as possible. And we play several roles in that. First, we are embedded with the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health leads the response, and we play an important role in providing them with expert advice. We're also the public health lead for the Disaster Assistance Response Team, the U.S. government response effort in DRC. And we also have provided uh, expert advice at the, in the WHO, and we've deployed staff to the WHO, and we have staff there now. We're planning our response through the end of the year. As you said, this is an ongoing outbreak. We don't see it ending very soon, and we want to be sure that we are poised to provide a response as long as is needed. 
So looking ahead right now, do you see opportunity for high-level engagement? You have a new president coming on board. One of the things we've heard in Munich was that there were plans afoot for Dr. Tedros to be engaging with uh, President Chishakedi. He saw him at the AU summit. He's, there are plans in the works to meet in Kinshasa. There's plans in the works for uh, Henrietta Four, executive director of UNICEF, uh, Al-Hajj Asi from the International Federation of the Red Cross, um, and Mark Lokok uh, from the U.S. And um, OCHA, the Humanitarian Coordination Entity, Undersecretary General, to be back in the region. And I find that very encouraging. I think those the rotation of senior leadership of this type is very, very important, I think, in putting the focus on what is it truly going to take to contain and arrest this outbreak. Are there plans afoot in terms of CDC being involved in some of these Yes, senior senior level leadership is very important. Um, Our CDC director, Dr. Redfield, went to the outbreak area very soon after the outbreak was announced. And, you know, this outbreak has some complex features and some opportunities. It's in an area with very difficult security, very difficult humanitarian issues. Um, Also, we have vaccine. And also, it's in a highly populated area. So we realized early that this was going to be a difficult outbreak to address. Our director is looking forward to another potential visit and is in very close contact with the Minister of Health, with our U.S. ambassador there, and with the WHO on a regular basis. So we are keeping close tabs, and our staff are, with all of those entities on a regular basis. Do we have any sense of what is in store in terms of the new cabinet and what that may might mean in terms of the Ministry of Health or the national labs? We have been very confident in the response of the Ministry of Health and the Minister of Health. We've worked with him very closely and think that he's done a very good job in leading the response. Our understanding is that the new president wants to work with the USG and will welcome the USG, and we um, hope that he will make a trip to the U.S., and if he does, we would like to brief him and give him our expert opinion on what's happening with the outbreak and where we think it's going. I don't know if they're going to change the Minister of Health, but if they do, we're committed to briefing that Minister of Health and being embedded in the Ministry of Health to make sure that we can continue our continuity of operations. Thank you. Why don't we talk a little bit about the surrounding region? What does it mean for us to be actively partnering with these neighboring states and trying to get them better prepared for the spillover, possible spillover into the region? Well, this outbreak is a really good example of why we need to focus on global health security. And by global health security, I mean partnering with other countries to build their capacity to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats. So for the Democratic Republic of Congo, we've been there since about 2002, working in many areas, helping build their national laboratories, helping them with incident management so they can respond, and also training field epidemiologists to respond in what's called the FETP program or the Field Epidemiology Training Program. That program is based upon a CDC program that's a two-year field epidemiology training program, which I did in 1998. That's how I started at CDC. And we have many programs around the world that are modeled on that, that we help countries build 
and then they take on. I was stationed in Thailand for five years, and Thailand was the second country that we've worked with, and they have been training field epidemiologists for 25 years that now have leadership in Ministry of Health. And the first graduating class in Democratic Republic of Congo was in 2015, and we've had many graduates who have been involved with and leaders in the response. So in the region, we have presence in many countries in the region, and we've been working very closely with countries that border DRC and this specific outbreak, preparing for the possibility of spread. As you know, that border has many border crossings per day, over 100,000. And so we have helped DRC and the neighboring countries, mainly Uganda and Rwanda, but also Burundi and South Sudan, with setting up border crossing surveillance, looking for people with fever and other symptoms, and then ruling out Ebola. We've also helped them in other areas that are important for preparation, incident management, making sure they're ready with laboratory diagnosis, and in some cases, starting vaccination and vaccinating healthcare workers that are along the border. What do you see as the biggest vulnerabilities at this point within the region? I mean, what are the things that keep you awake? So one of them is this porous border or the high number of border crossings. It's very difficult to monitor all the official and unofficial border crossings, make sure we have good surveillance, act on all the potential cases that we find, and make sure they're ruled out. That's very difficult. So it's possible that cases could show up in other countries. Some countries are better prepared than others. And so if a case is detected in Uganda or a case detected in South Sudan, there could be a different level of response. So we're working very hard to help prepare all of the countries. And again, I want to stress this is why our U.S. government global health security agenda is so important because we want to help other countries be able to have that capacity for future outbreaks of whatever they are, Ebola or other outbreaks. In addition, this outbreak, there's a lot of um, healthcare workers that have been exposed. Mm -hmm. So infection prevention and control in hospitals and healthcare settings is very important. Cases that are detected have often presented in one or maybe multiple healthcare facilities, and there's an opportunity for spread. We've had a lot of healthcare workers, uh, uh, 21 healthcare workers have died, which is an indication that they're spread through the, through the health facilities. Why is it that so many women Almost 60% of the cases are women, and about a third of the cases are very young, under 30. Why are we seeing this profile in DRC, do you think? Yeah, there's a few reasons why people get infected. So one is spread in healthcare facilities. Mm -hmm. Another is spread in families, among caregivers and people in the home. Safe burial is something that we learned in West Africa was very important to try to work on safe and dignified burial in a difficult cultural context. And um, another issue that we have is community hesitancy. In this area, which, as I said, is a very complex humanitarian area, there's a lot of hesitancy to trust government officials. So what we need to do is engage local healthcare workers who speak the local language to build trust as much as possible because there's a lot of rumors about vaccine mm -hmm. and whether or not the disease was planted and does Ebola vaccine give you the disease and just general lack of trust that we have to overcome. 
And that's another thing that we've learned in many outbreaks, but especially in West Africa, that working with communities and building trust in a culturally sensitive setting is one of the most important things that you can do. Medical anthropologists played a very important role in the 2014 outbreak. The epidemic itself, the outbreak in eastern Congo, there was quite a bit of discussion in Munich about what type of outbreak this is. And, you know, one of the big questions is, is this becoming endemic? Is this becoming semi-permanent, something that won't be arrested in the near term? And this is something that Dr. Redfield has raised uh, publicly um, in some of his remarks. Related to that, uh, Mike Ryan from WHO was, was very eloquent in saying, this is a system of wildfire outbreaks. There's been six, relative success at arresting the outbreak in one of the earlier hotspots, Benny. But now you've got very intense hotspots in Katwa and Botembo. It spreads geographically. It's into six, somewhere between 16 and 18 health zones. So it's got a big geographic spread. Tell us a bit more about what this means. Um, if we are facing something that is indeed endemic or becoming endemic, that has huge consequences downstream. It has huge consequences financially as well as resetting expectations uh, of all involved. Yeah, the outbreak has continued to expand to new health zones as there's been resolution in other health zones. Um, I think there's been about 12 health zones with active cases in the last 21 days and about 20 to 40 cases a week. And that's been relatively consistent. So mm -hmm. the outbreak is continuing. And as I said, we are planning our response for the end of the year. We have done some estimations, and the estimations are that the outbreak is continuing and not going to end anytime soon. So we want to be prepared for the long term. One of the things that we're doing is recruiting for our staff to be able to be in the DRC for longer periods of time and at WHO for longer periods of time. And what does this mean in terms of the vaccination strategy? Yeah, vaccination is something that is very important. It's rel it's new for for Ebola outbreaks, so it's something that we're learning about. It's very exciting that we have that, and we think it's played a big role in attenuating this outbreak. Mm -hmm. We believe that the ring vaccination strategy, the contacts and the contacts of contacts, is the best way to control the outbreak. And we need to push to try to be able to implement that strategy as much as possible. In addition, we are looking at vaccinating healthcare workers along the border, and we've started that in Uganda. In some cases where there has been security issues, we've moved to some more geographic vaccination in order to be able to try to vaccinate as many people as we can that might be exposed when we can't find the contacts or the contacts of contacts. But this ring vaccination strategy is really where we want to focus. We've been working with WHO and the Ministry of Health to push that as much as possible because we think that's going to be the most effective way to address the outbreak. I realize that, you know, CDC doesn't make the determination around security, that this is made elsewhere in our government, and, and that's not really your role. But I did want to ask you about the broader question of operating, of CDC operating in hazardous or non-permissive environments. 
this is not the only place where CDC personnel and USAID personnel are trying to carry out very important health and humanitarian work where there's a certain level of risk. And it seems to me that one of the unanswered questions right now is how much risk tolerance is warranted and, and justified and additional type of investment is required. So I'm not asking you to talk about how the determination's made. I realize that's outside of you. But how do you think about this problem? How does CDC think about this problem looking into the future? Because the DRC situation is not the only situation. It's just a more of an emblematic expression of a broader problem that we're seeing emerge. Sure. First, I want to be clear that we are working. We've had about 168 deployments and more than 100 staff that have gone to Geneva and to the the region and have deployed people in DRC and in the surrounding countries. And we are committed to continuing that. So we are providing a lot of support now. I think that one of the things that I love about CDC is that we have staff who are very dedicated to addressing outbreaks around the world, and we're poised to go where the security situation allows. Mm -hmm. And we have preparations in place to be able to go in when the security situation is allowed. As you know, we defer the security experts in the United the U.S. government, we are public health experts. We're not the security experts, so we don't make that decision. But we are prepared and poised to go where we need to go when we're, when we're allowed. To some degree, you have an expeditionary culture. So you have an ex- expeditionary mindset during the 2014 to 16 West African outbreak. I think 13 or 1,400 CDC personnel rotated through on a voluntary basis. It was the largest deployment of CDC staff ever, and it was 100% volunteer. And that was, you know, that was a different, that didn't face the same level of insecurity as Eastern Congo. But it wasn't exactly a cakewalk. I mean, it was a place where you had to be fairly rugged in your outlook. I don't see this as so cut and dry. West Africa had its hazards, and CDC personnel were sick them, you know, very, fortunately, there were no injuries, no serious injuries or harm done to any of those folks. But I think that was more luck than anything else. There was a lot of certain discipline in the way that the, the, the personnel were deployed and the like. But there was, there was no fear of deploying, and there was a willingness to go out and accept those risks. Has there been more thinking within CDC about how to try to capture or calibrate the risks that you do face in these situations? Well, part of the reason why I think staff are willing to take the risks is because we rely on our U.S. security experts and we're under chief of mission authority when we go into country. And they have a long history of carefully assessing the risks and really protecting staff and doing what needs to be done, whether it be armored cars or allowing you into certain areas and not into other areas or making sure that you don't spend the night somewhere or they, they do a lot of work to assess where we yeah. can and can't go. And I think this is the same, you know, I think our staff are ready to go where we're allowed but really want to rely on the security experts to say what's safe. Right. 
I was struck in um, in Munich and listening to Senator Graham talking about Afghanistan, where the concern was that we're in a process in Afghanistan and in Syria of drawing down our military engagement. So we're in a process of withdrawal. And what does that create in terms of risks to, in the case of Afghanistan, the investments made in empowering women and protecting them and giving them rights and and economic opportunities and the like, it has consequences potentially to those sorts of withdrawals on the public health side when you're talking about the the health benefits that have been created and ongoing polio campaign. So the DRC decision comes in a context in which we are in a period of, as a matter of of our security strategy, in a period of disengagement from some of these long-standing security commitments. Um, and I, in that sense, I, I think the caution that we're seeing in DOC is part of a broader phenomenon of, of low, attempting to lower our exposure and our commitments there. And it does, you know, whether that is strategically the right thing to do or not is a, is, is, is a point of debate. But the, for us, it seems, in, in the public health world, the, the question is how do, we, how do we best cope with uh, a changing security calculation, a changing national security strategy um, that is going to put some stress on, on our commitments, um, and we're going to have to figure out how to navigate that. Yeah, a couple things about that. There was a concerted effort with the USG really playing a lead role to work on assessing where the WHO had vulnerabilities and strengthening their ability to respond um, and investing in that. And WHO has a stronger organization with a strong leader um, of the of the WHO emergencies program, and they have, I believe, around four hundred people in DRC um, addressing this outbreak. And so their ability to respond has been improved. So I think that's one area that we should be working on. Another is improving the country's ability to respond. And I talked about our engagement with DRC over the past. 20 years or so in improving various aspects, important aspects of preparedness and, and response. Mm-hmm. And training, uh, training, um, training young leaders and people who work in the health department to be able to do the work of responding is really where we need to go with the world. Because right now there's Ebola and it's something that we have to address. But we're very concerned about flu and other emerging diseases that we may not know of now. And the best way to contain them is to identify them and contain them at their source before they spread. So the U.S. government has been a leader in a multinational effort called the Global Health Security Agenda that really came out of the Ebola outbreak in 2014, which is an effort There are about 50 countries that belong in this global health security agenda and are providing assistance to over 70 countries to improve their capacities. And that includes things like having objective assessments with people from multiple countries coming in and looking at the capacities and giving them kind of a scorecard to work on and then countries committing to helping them improve. That's never been done before to have these kind of objectives review. And we've seen real 
measurable improvements in many countries. And so that's something that the U.S. government is committed to working with other countries, and we're planning now on what the next five years of this global health security agenda is going to look like. And we need to be improving the capacity of countries because this is not going to be the last outbreak that we have to address. Well, I very much appreciate you coming and spending all this time with us. Thank you for sharing all of this. No, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. If you want to learn more about upcoming events and our work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page.